Thank you, Jay. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles if you uh, have your own at this point in time. If you don't have your own, there should be some Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And turn with me, if you will, to the passage that Jay just read for us out of Jeremiah. Maybe you're there already. Yeah, if not, go ahead and turn there at this point in time. Uh, open to the middle of your Bible. You'll find Psalm, uh, the book of Psalms. If you find Isaiah, Jeremiah comes immediately after that. Jeremiah chapter 2, as we continue uh, in our new sermon series entitled Sipping Salt Water. This morning, we'll see that in our fallen state, we are indeed thirsty. And what we fill ourselves with is salt water. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. I trust that you're there. So let's pray one more time, and then we'll get to work. So let's pray. Father, it's so good for us to be here this morning. We delight in the privilege and the opportunity of spending time with you and and your people. We're so grateful for the the chance to come to give you uh, the praise of our lips. We pray that it would be um, a pleasing aroma uh, to you, that you would be um, delighted in our praise, and that our hearts would be delighted to praise you. Father, it's good for us to give of our tithes and our offerings a portion of what you have entrusted to us and blessed us with. We give back to you uh, as, as an offering for the advancement of your church and your kingdom, both here in this little community and quite literally around the world. We pray that your kingdom would come uh, because of what we have given today. Father, we are also grateful just to sit here with Bibles in our laps, uh, to know that we have the inspired and inerrant and authoritative word uh, from you that you have preserved for us. And Father, you have a word for us this morning as you spoke to your people, the nation of Israel, through the prophet Jeremiah so long ago. So you speak to us still, and we pray that your spirit would, would be welcome here as we have sung, that he would move and have access to our hearts and to our minds, revealing the idols of our hearts and the, and the lies that they're telling us, and pointing us away from uh, man-made, self-dug cisterns and towards you, our fountain of living water. We pray it in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. million dollars. 3.6 million dollars. That was Sam Polk's, P-O-L-K, Sam Polk's bonus in 2010. Yes, you heard me right, his bonus. And what turned out to be his final year as a hedge fund trader on Wall Street. After starting out as a broke college student, he first landed a position with the Wall Street Bank right out of college. And after only four years, he was offered a job by a competitor um, with an annual salary of $1.7 million. And here's the catch. He turned it down. He turned it down. He had even bigger aspirations of working at a hedge fund, a job which he soon landed. And in 2010, in a New York Times article, he shared his response to this $3.6 million bonus. He, He said this, I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old, had no children to raise, no debts to pay, 
no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason an alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. And that's Sam's story. I want to tell you a little bit about Anna as well. Anna was a single woman, and all that she had ever wanted in life was to get married and to raise a family. She eventually met someone, and they got married, and God gave them two wonderful and and beautiful, healthy children. But there was something within Anna's heart, something that this overpowering drive. She wanted to give her children everything she, she possibly could. She wanted their life to be perfect. Glenn, I'm a little hot. Um, and I don't mean how I look this morning. And that desire to give her children the perfect life actually drove joy not to her family, but away from her home. See, the oldest struggled in school. And the youngest had anger issues because of the stifling environment that this type of parenting brought about. All she ever wanted was to give them the perfect life. But instead, all she did was bring harm to them. I want to introduce you to another young man. His name is Steve. Now, Steve was an excellent student in high school. He worked very hard, and he earned a scholarship to the university of his choice, which happened to be, to be the University of Michigan. He had this drive inside of him. He had to prove that he belonged. And so in college, he worked harder than ever. He poured all that he had into his schoolwork from sunup to sundown. He studied. He was in the library. He studied in between classes. He studied during meals. He studied on Friday nights. He even studied during uh, football games at the big house. And he was a Christian, but instead of going to church on Sunday morning, well, you guessed it, he studied even some more. And so his first semester semester came and went, and he got his report card. And he pulled it out, and he received three A's and one A-. minus. I think most of us would be pleased with that, right? Tickled pink. A, 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 A-. See, the A- to him was not good enough, and so... Per his own story, he worked even harder, spending up to 16 to 18 hours a day on academics, while his relationships and his health, both both his physical health and his mental health, and of course his spiritual health, began to deteriorate. So I've got some questions for us based on these true stories. How did Sam Polk go from being a poor college student having no money to a wealth addict in only eight years? How did Anna go from a single woman who just wanted to get married and have a family to an OCD mom who damaged the very children that she was trying to love? What would drive Steve to be disappointed with an A- minus? Well, the answer lies in the fact that they all, like we all, were sipping, chugging salt water. If you were with us last week, you recall in part one of our sermon series that we learned that each and every one of us is born with a thirst. We are born as fallen people with a spiritual thirst, and that that thirst is for paradise, 
That is, we are born thirsty for a missing relationship with God. See, God lent us paradise in Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden. We lost that paradise with Adam and Eve's sin. And we have longed for that paradise, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, ever, ever since. But instead of turning back to God... Instead of turning back to pursuing a relationship with him that we once had, we as fallen people instead turn to paradise substitutes, if you will. We turn to salt water. We turn to what the Bible calls idols. Idols of the heart. And so as we look at Jeremiah chapter 2 in what is a stunning indictment of the nation of Israel, God through Jeremiah denounces their forsaking of him for false gods and in doing so outlines for us what Steve Hopp in his wonderfully helpful book by the same title, Sipping Salt Water, what he describes as the salt water cycle. It's the idolatry cycle, what it actually looks and feels like in our lives and in our hearts before we become Christians, and as we'll talk about in weeks to come, even after we become Christians, we can get hooked on the saltwater cycle. And here's a quick summary of the saltwater cycle. Number one, we listen to a lie. We listen to a lie that the idol is feeding us. Not only do we listen to that lie, but then we drink, right? We actually partake in that salt water. We worship that heart idol. And then number three, we suffer the consequences of our choices. We listen to the lie, we drink the salt water, and as drinking regular salt water, we all know, can have consequences. So drinking spiritual salt water can have consequences to our soul as well. So let's begin in Jeremiah chapter 2, and I want us to see in verses 1 through 8 that Israel listened to a lie. They listened to the the lies of the idols around them, and friends, we do the same. Step number one, we listen to a lie. Now, I ran across a list this week, and uh, the list was simply entitled, Famous American Fibs. Uh, Famous American lies, right? So maybe you can identify with some of these. Uh, Number one, the check is in the mail. Maybe you've heard that one before. I'll start my diet tomorrow. Give me your number and the doctor will call you right back. This is my personal favorite. Number four, one size, what? Fits all, does it? No, we, we know that. This hurts me more than it hurts You, I just need five minutes of your time. Your table will be ready in a few minutes. Open wide, this won't hurt a bit. We all like going to the dentist, don't we? I think we all are adept at spotting American lies, but I'm not so sure that we're as good at spotting what I will call idle lies. And we see those lies being told in Jeremiah chapter 2. So look at the text, if you will, and on your lap or on the screen behind me. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, God proclaimed to his people through the prophet Jeremiah his fond remembrance of the early days of their relationship when they were faithful to him as he led them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And, and listen for the imagery of marriage. 
it's, it runs throughout this passage, this passage. He says, this is the honeymoon, right? I remember the honeymoon phase of our relationship when you were faithful to me, God says. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. And so in the early days of their marriage, Israel, in a covenant relationship with God, he redeemed them through, out of Egypt, and he led them into the promised land, and they were holy to the Lord. They were faithful to him, and yet, like some spouses are prone to do, God's people began to have a wandering eye for other suitors. And like a wife who believes that the love of another man could satisfy Israel, strayed from God and believed idle lies. In verses 4 through 8, um, uh, the text sort of reads like a, a husband scorned. You place yourself in that scenario, right? You're in a relationship, you're, in, you're married and your spouse is unfaithful. God says, that is like what you are to me, Israel. And verses 4 through 8 reads like a, a husband scorned, asking his wayward wife this haunting question. Why? Why were you unfaithful to me? What in me? What action in me, what have I done so that you would leave me? So we move in verses one through three to Israel's from Israel's devotion to Israel's departure in four through eight. Let's look at the text. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols, and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. Verse 7, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. He points out three groups of people. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. See, in verses 4 through 7, I think we see very clearly the um, irrationality of Israel's, and catch this, our idolatry. God is pointing out the irrationality of Israel forsaking him for worthless idols and the irrationality of, of our forsaking God for worthless idols. See, what fault could God's people find with him? Was he insufficient Was he lacking anything? Was he not completely good to them? Of course he was, right? 
yet they took the blessings of a covenant relationship with God and they defiled it. In short, in this first section, verses 1 through 8, we see that God's people, they listened to a lie. There were idols in the nations around them, false gods that the nations worshipped, and they promised the nation of Israel other things, and they began to incline their ear towards those lies. What was the lie that they believed? What's the lie that we believe? This is it. That salt water, that idol gods, can somehow quench our spiritual thirsts for paradise. That they could find and that we can find true joy and satisfaction and contentment in this world apart from a covenant relationship with God. And friends, we believe this lie as well. We believe that something other than God can quench this insatiable thirsts within our souls that we are born with in this fallen state. We believe that that anything else can relieve us from this inward longing that has stalked us from birth. And so we look at what God offers us. We look at creation. We know that He exists. We, We hear the gospel of His Son, and yet we turn away from it as Israel turned away from what God had done for them. See, we buy the lie that anything, be it success or career, or acceptance, or love, or possessions, or family can give us ultimate significance, ultimate security, ultimate safety, and ultimate fulfillment. So friends, we need to begin to think this morning about the idols that are whispering in our ears. We need to begin to think about the lies that the idols of our heart and our culture are whispering to us. And if we are listening And if we are buying them, because Israel bought the lies of the idols, which is step number one of the salt water cycle. See, when we are faced with these lies, when Israel was faced with the lies, when we are faced with idol lies, when we are presented a cup of salt water, if you will, then we have a choice. We can pour it out on the ground and recognize it for what it is, or we can do what? We can drink it, right? We can guzzle it or sip it, whatever it might be. See, Polk could have quit his job, right? He could have begun to give away his money. And Anna, she could have stopped uh, idealizing her children. And Steve, well, he could have just taken a study break, right? But instead, each of them do what Israel did and what most of us do, which is we believe the lie, we take a drink, which of course is step number two of the salt water cycle. Not only do we listen to the lie that this idol is offering, but we look at that and we believe it, and then we indulge, we worship, we take a drink, and we see that as we move on to verses 9 through 13. We drink. First of all, Take a look at verses 9 through 11. The imagery here, um, God moves from the imagery of marriage to the imagery of a courtroom. So imagine a courtroom, if you will, and God here uses courtroom language. And he says, I am going to bring a lawsuit against my people, right? And uh, they are, of course, on trial. God is both uh, the judge and the prosecutor. And the, um, the, the courtroom, if you will, the, uh, is, is creation. It's, it's the heavens 
Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, I'm going to take you on a little field trip. The jury, just take a look. Let me point out my first piece of evidence in verse 9. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Now, here's, here's the little field trip he brings the jury on. Verse 10, cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to, uh, to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods, little g gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But, in contrast, but my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. I think the point of this illustration is very straightforward. God says that the idolatrous nations surrounding Israel were more faithful to their false gods than Israel had been to the true God, right? And that's a damning condemnation on the people of God. See, Israel had exchanged the worship and the satisfaction and the joy of a covenant relationship with God to pursue worthless idols. And we see this Exchange. We see this drinking, if you will, um, in verses 12 through 13, where the imagery of, of, of drinking and being satisfied comes full bore. So take a look at verse 12. Be appalled at this, you heavens. The heavens and the earth, all creation is the jury, right? He says, look, be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great Horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. Number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Number two, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So notice the imagery here, right? He likens idolatry to forsaking a, a God-made spring, right? a natural spring, which, of course, provides fresh water, running water, healthy water. This is God-made. It's good for us, right? He says idolatry is like forsaking that type of water and drinking out of a man-made source of water, a man-made cistern. Now, cisterns in Israel would often uh, run dry, and when they did have water, it was only runoff water as opposed to fresh spring water, and it was often covered with bugs and worm and disease. Let's just say it was not something you would just pour in your water, your cup, and you, you want to drink of it, right? It was sort of the last resource, right? If you had no other water, you go here. And he says, that, that's what idolatry is like. As ludicrous as that exchange sounds, so, God says, is the ludicrousness of sipping salt water, of seeking in man-made things only what God can truly give us. So while Israel drank from the cisterns of the idols of Baal and Astra, and we can go on, numerous idols that we see the, the nation of Israel worshipped and participated with, 
Friends, let's not fool ourselves. Because here in the 21st century, we too have a pantheon of little g-gods, both in the culture around us, and guess what? In our hearts, right here. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that our hearts um, are an idol factory. Got that imagery? They, They pump out idols. We're looking for things to worship and to give ourselves to other than God. So as we think about idols and as we think about the worship of idols, let's not fool ourselves into thinking because we don't have shrines uh, to Artemis like they did in Paul's day, that there aren't shrines to other objects of worship as well. Steve Hopp in his book helps us understand idolatry, and I'm going to read an extended quote. Follow me on the screen, please. He says, I'm talking about created things in and around us that take the place of God. They're the people, places, and things that rule our lives. They hijack our hearts. They steal our souls. We put our hopes in them. We fill our minds with them. We offer our bodies to them. And ultimately, he writes, we worship them. So then he asks an all-important question. How do you know if a little g-god is in your life? Friends, before we become Christians, our hearts are idol factories. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, even after we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and get a taste of the living waters, friends, our hearts can still go back to broken cisterns. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, a series of questions, he says. Number one, who do you adore? way too much. What do you obsess about? What do you fantasize about? I think this is a good one. What are you terrified of losing? What do you need with a capital N? What do you spend your time on? What is your go-to escape in the midst of hard times and sufferings? What gives you purpose? What gives you meaning? What makes you feel like you are secure? Where do you put your trust when life is scary? What do you spend your money on? What defines you? What do you worship? He says, that then is your God. Now you may notice, as you hopefully, as I have been all week, trying to honestly answer these questions and identify the idols that my fallen heart is producing, you may notice that as you answer those questions, that most of the answers are not things that are inherently bad. They may not be things that are inherently evil or sinful. As I answer those questions, all sorts of good things come to mind, good gifts that God has given me. That's what's coming to my mind as I answer those questions, and that this is so important. Likely the idols of our hearts are good gifts from God that we turn into a God, right? That's what most of our idols are. Most of the salt water that we're sipping or chugging are good things that we have elevated to God things. Hop again, I think, helpfully says, drinking salt water means turning a gift from God into a God. I think that's a great definition of what we're talking about. And friends, that's why idolatry... In our hearts, it's subtle. 
It's often undetectable because the idols that I think we often give ourselves to are, are good things that we have slowly, over time, elevated to be higher than they should, to be more important than they should, to give us more satisfaction than they should. So unfortunately, the salt water cycle doesn't end when we put the bottle of salt water down. We believe the lie, we take a drink, but then there is a third step, and we see it in verses 14 through 19, and that is we suffer the consequences. We suffer the consequences of drinking salt water. Friends, if you drink salt water, you will become even more dehydrated, and you will become even more thirsty. And there are other medical implications. Friends, the same is true spiritually. So, 14 through 19. Maybe you've heard of... uh, Uh, well-known pastor, David Jeremiah. Uh, In his weekly uh, devotional, Turning Point, um, he points out that sin always has unintended consequences. And then he tells this story. I'll read it to you. He says, take the, the Seattle man, for example, who tried to steal gasoline from a motorhome. Attaching one end of a siphoning hose to the vehicle and the other to his mouth, He began to siphon. But police found him shortly afterwards writhing in agony in the streets. He writes, Seemingly, he had attached the hose, not to the gasoline tank, but to the motorhome's sewage tank. The owner declined to press charges because he was too busy laughing. Oh. Friends, facing the consequences of our decisions, in particular, the decisions of our salt water drinking. It's really no laughing matter. In these final verses, we see some devastating consequences that idolatry brought to the nation of Israel. The first thing, take a look at verse 14, 14, 15, 16, and 17. The first consequence was that God brought in foreign armies, foreign invaders, here from the land of Egypt, and he likens them to roaring lions. Notice the imagery, verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? No. Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared. They have growled at him. They have laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. Also the men of Memphis and Tephanes, cities from Egypt, have cracked your skull. Notice verse 17. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Is God not abundantly clear? The consequence, O Israel, of your idolatry is this. But there was another consequence from their idolatry. We see it in the text, verses 18 and 19. And that is, instead of relying upon God as a nation to provide them with security and protection from foreign powers, Israel decided to make treaties with other nations. They said, God, I don't know if you're going to protect us, and so we're going to go to other nations and barter a deal. We will give you this if you protect us, particularly the nations of Assyria and Egypt. Notice verse 18. Now, why go to Egypt to drink water from the Nile? It's an imagery. Why did you make a treaty with them? And why go to Assyria to drink water from Euphrates? Now, isn't it interesting? What's the language of idolatry in this passage? 
They're going to foreign nations for protection. And what are they doing? Drinking, right? This, this, lang- this imagery is throughout this text. Verse 19, your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no all of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. So God, he wanted them to consider, right, the consequences of their idolatry. And friends, God beckons us to do the same. He wants us to consider the consequences of our idolatry. I think there are numerous consequences. I just want to point out two prominent ones that are true of any idol of our hearts. Number one, the first consequence of sipping salt water is that the idol will always fail to deliver on its promise to hydrate our souls. Get the imagery there? The idol promises to do and bring what only God can, but it always fails to deliver. See, getting that straight A report card, it it wouldn't have made Steve happy, right? It wouldn't have satisfied him. He would have wanted something else. The 3.6 million with the capital M dollar bonus, was that satisfying for Steve? No, it wasn't good enough for him, right? He wanted more. Friends, the vacation of our dreams won't satisfy the idol of rest in our hearts. It won't do it. The sexual encounter never satisfies the idol of pleasure if it lives within our hearts. The food binge will never satisfy the idol of comfort if we're worshiping at that altar. The promotion won't satisfy the idol of success if it's living in our hearts. Instead, what happens? We feel disappointed. We feel frustrated. We are sad. We are hopeless because that which we thought would really do the trick doesn't. And so what do we do, right? Well, consequence number two. We buy the lie again and we drink even more of the same salt water, right? And so if we're worshiping the idol of success and we have a 12-ounce cup, we drink it all, we're still thirsty. And so we get a 24-ounce cup, and we drink it all. And we go to the 32-ounce, and we drink it all. And we go to the 64, and you go see where I'm going with this, right? Or we say the idol of comfort, we drink it, and we're like, this is just, it's not, it's not doing it. And so we exchange the bottle of salt water for a different flavor of salt water. We say, well, if comfort doesn't do it, then maybe pleasure will. And so we exchange one cup for another, and all the while, we're just getting more thirsty. When I was in college, um, my senior year, I had some friends that were in Campus Crusade for Christ. And the, the boys were always in a habit of Friday afternoons, we played flag football uh, there on the football fields at AM. And so I like football. And uh, so that we would arrange our schedules, and we would do that. So every Friday from like 1 to 5, flag football in the Texas heat, and it was great. I had a wonderful time. Um, but, of course, we got thirsty. <laughs> you know, you do that, you get thirsty. And so I had water and stuff. But, man, when I was done with that, I was so incredibly thirsty. And so what I would do is I would, I, I would go to the, the convenience store, and I'd get a, a couple big bottles of Gatorade, right? 
Because you would think, what do they call it? It's a thirst quencher, right? So, I, so I'd get it, and I'd drink those two bottles of Gatorade, and of course it would fill me with all the stuff that I need. But after drinking those two bottles of Gatorade, and maybe you've had this experience, guess what? I was thirsty. I was still thirsty. Friends, that's what salt water is like. We drink it, and we drink it, and we think it's going to satisfy, and it won't. It's the same with idols. And so we don't take a sip, but we take a gulp, and we become even more spiritually dehydrated. And so we need more comfort, and more success, and more money, and more recognition, and more whatever it is that we're really desiring. And the cycle just goes on and on and on. And so as we close here, the, the real question for us is this. Is there any way to break the cycle? I mean, if this is true, and it's true, is there any way that we can get off that cycle? Well, friends, thankfully there is. And take a look at your Bibles back in verse 13. Look at it in verse 13. What does God, God liken himself to? He says that a relationship with him is, is like a drink, is it not? He says that he is the spring of living water, right? He says, if you come to me, you come to a relationship with me, I'm like living water, right? I taste good, and I, ref- I refresh, and I satisfy. That's, that's what I'm like. And so the answer of how to break the cycle is not really a how at all. It's a who, right? It's a who. And so I'm going to prime the pump here so that you'll come back next Sunday. Into that context comes Jesus. And in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, we read this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of, guess what? Living water. That sounds like what Jeremiah is talking about, doesn't it? Rivers of living water will flow from from within them. And so, friends, there is a way to break the salt water cycle. It's not a how, it is a who. And as we explore next week, Jesus' declaration that he is the living water, Friends, know that the cycle can be broken. Jesus breaks it first by facing it. Did you know that God the Son came down from heaven and he became human just like us and that he was fully tempted just like us? So what that means is that did, was Jesus faced with the salt water cycle? I mean, did he see the bottle of salt water? and Was he faced with it? Yes, he was. Did he drink from it? No, he did not. He did not drink from it. He was always faithful to his God. In fact, in another place in the Gospel of John, Jesus likens his relationship to his Father and doing his Father's will to food. Remember that? He says, guys, I've got a food that you don't know about. In other words, what fills my soul is obeying my Father and knowing him and being in a relationship with him. He, he, Jesus didn't believe the lie. And he didn't take a drink. And here's the catch. He suffered the consequences of our salt water. Did you catch that? 
we should suffer the consequences of our salt water eternally. Jesus should not because he never drank any. But in great love for us, he knew that we were salt water drinkers. And so he paid the penalty for all of our salt water. It's the greatest news ever because I'm an idolater and you're an idolater and we have no hope from being in a relationship with God that is all satisfying and all good aside from what Jesus has done. He took our salt water and he overcame it and he broke the salt water cycle with his life and he offers that life to us. He says that he will come and live inside of us and that he will give his Holy Spirit to us so that we too can break the salt water cycle. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the attentive folks. We thank you for your word. It is altogether good and true and helpful. Lord, for those of us here, and uh, we have not come into a covenant relationship with you through faith and faith alone in your son Jesus, then Lord, I pray even now that your spirit would work to reveal the idols of their hearts, that they might see that they are sipping salt water, but that the living water is offered to them for free. For free. And that they would receive the gift of forgiveness and salvation. And that they would exchange their salt water for living water. And Father, for those of us here, like myself, who have done that, we know the taste of living water. And yet we know that we still have this flesh in us and that there are still desires in us that are contrary to the desires of the Holy Spirit in us and that, oh, as the song says, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. We too, even as born-again Christians, we, we want salt water at times. And so, Father, help us to identify the idols of our hearts, to not buy the lie, and to return to you, O Jesus, the spring of living water, to find abundant life, and we pray it in your name. And God's people said, Amen. See you next week, guys.